0: from Trinity Grace Church in San Antonio, Texas. For more information, please visit trinitygracesa.org. Well, I want to welcome you once again to Trinity Grace. We are so glad that you're here, especially if you're a guest with us. My name is Michael. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity Grace, and that was Jim Moore, one of our ruling elders leading us in prayer this morning. And if we haven't had the chance to meet you yet, we would love that opportunity after the service today. But for now, if you have a copy of God's Word, you'll want to turn it to Exodus chapter 17. Exodus chapter 17, the passage is also printed for you in your worship folder. And kids, our young disciples, young followers of Jesus, as always, I want to invite you to be listening for the following three things during the sermon this morning. First, be listening for a story about a honeymoon. A story about a honeymoon. Second, be listening for how God responds to grumbling. How does God respond to grumbling? And third, be listening for what the rock represents in the story we're about to read. What does the rock represent? Well, this is the portion of our service where we open the Bible in hopes of understanding what it says and how it applies to our lives. And this fall, we've been engaged in a sermon series considering the Old Testament book of Exodus. And at the beginning of this book, we see God's people suffering oppression and injustice at the hands of Pharaoh. But right alongside that sad story, we see God at work behind the scenes raising up a deliverer named Moses. And early on in the story, we saw how Moses was providentially saved from death, how he was raised in the Egyptian court, and later in life, he encountered God in a burning bush. And he's called back to Egypt to go toe-to-toe with Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt, And after a series of miraculous plagues where God demonstrates his complete control over creation, Pharaoh sends the people away. But soon after, Pharaoh changes his mind and he pursues the Israelites to get them back. And it was there where God led his people through the Red Sea on dry ground and then destroyed the Egyptian army with the very same waters. In short, we have witnessed God's deliverance on the pages of Exodus. We've witnessed his rescue, and he's displayed his power and might over the forces of evil that oppress his people. And now we get to the portion of this story, we started it last week, known as the wilderness wanderings, where Israel, God's people, travel through the desert for 40 years as they make their way to the promised land of Canaan. And we mentioned last week that their wilderness wanderings are really analogous to how we travel through the desert of this fallen world, completely dependent on God to guide us towards the promised land of a new heavens and a new earth. And what we see in the Exodus story is that the wilderness wanderings, they're meant to test God's people. In other words, the wilderness is meant to shape and form them in deeper trust and dependence upon the Lord. The wilderness wanderings, they're meant to be a transformational process. I love how one pastor says, you can take a person out of slavery in a second. You can only take the slavery out of a person through a process. And the wilderness wanderings are the process by which God is seeking to shape Israel into free people. But as they travel through the desert, just like we travel through this sinful world, life is full of difficulty and disappointment and trouble. And this morning, we get the chance to consider another account where Israel experiences the painful process of having the spirit of slavery chiseled away from their heart. To see what I mean, you follow along as I read from Exodus chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock of Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and the water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Masa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Well, this is God's word and he gives it to us because he loves us and he wants us to know him. Well, Rachel and I, my wife, have been married for almost 18 years now. And of course, I remember our wedding day like it was yesterday. It was a day full of joy and happiness. We were surrounded by friends and family. The entire week felt like one gigantic party as different friends made their way to town to help us celebrate. The rehearsal dinner was encouraging as we got the chance to hear from our family and our friends. The service was beautiful. The reception was a blast. It was a great day that marked the beginning of a new family. But then the day after came. And if I'm being honest, it wasn't as great The day started with us getting in our car to drive to the Smoky Mountains for a week-long honeymoon, but we didn't get far because our car began to overheat. So we pulled into the repair shop and had my mom come pick us up while the car was worked on for the next six hours. Unexpected time with mom after our wedding. (laughs) Well, finally, we got on our way the same day, and when we crossed the North Carolina line... Closing in on our destination, I got pulled over in a construction zone for speeding. And I'm not sure why to this day I didn't tell the officer that we were on our honeymoon because I'm sure that he would have cut us some slack, but I didn't. And I got a ticket for $350. Now, this was an issue because we didn't have a whole lot of money at the time, and $350 was almost our entire budget for having fun that week on our honeymoon. We may do, we had a good week, but reading the last few chapters of Exodus, it reminds me of that week in so many ways. A glorious, joyful event followed by a process of disappointment and difficulty. It frames the wilderness wanderings really well. There's always a day after, isn't there? What's it like the day after salvation? The day after deliverance? The day after you see the Lord bring you through the Red Sea, what's it like the day after the glorious, joyful event of rescue? Well, what we see is that the day after deliverance is oftentimes full of trials and testing and learning dependence on God. Account after account in the wilderness, we see God's people grumbling and questioning as they encounter difficulty. And as we pick up in Exodus chapter 17, we see that there's no water for the people to drink. They're in the middle of the desert and there's no water. Talk about adversity. I mean, you can imagine why God's people might be a little anxious about their situation. We'd be anxious too in the middle of a desert. No water to be seen. And as they come to realize their predicament, they begin to grumble. We see it in verse 3. Look, the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled. We all face adversity to one degree or another as we walk through the wilderness of this fallen world. And just like the people we read about on the pages of Exodus, they do it over and over and over again. We are prone to respond to testing, to adversity, to difficulty with grumbling. We all know what grumbling looks like. We've all had a bad-tempered spirit, haven't we? We've all murmured under our breath. We've all had our anxiety spill over into anger and accusation. We know what grumbling is. We know it when we see it. We all do it. And if we're honest, we normally don't really feel that bad about it. After all, aren't we entitled to some griping? Aren't we entitled to letting off a little steam through the difficulty of life? All we've ever done is try to be faithful. All we've ever done is try to do the right thing, try to follow the Lord. And when we encounter acute adversity, then we tend to want some payback. We want to be rewarded for our efforts. And if we're not, it is all too easy to begin grumbling. At least it makes us feel better, doesn't it? But God thinks that Israel's grumbling is a big deal. We might not, but He does. Their grumbling is actually highlighted half a dozen to a dozen times in both the Old Testament and New Testament as a serious sin, a failure of God's people to trust and depend upon Him. Grumbling, it's a serious character defect. It reveals something about who we are on the inside. Grumbling, it's an outward manifestation of what's happening in our hearts. And I wonder this morning, what or whom are you quietly but consistently grumbling against? Maybe an even more important question for us this morning would be, what does grumbling reveal about our heart? Grumblers like me, they tend to have a heart attitude of cynicism, joylessness. Grumblers can't be happy. If grumbling becomes a way of life for you, you might be a person who bounces from job to job, or friend group to friend group, or church to church. And circumstances around you might change, but you take your heart with you. That's the unfortunate thing. And what you'll find is that each new situation eventually leads to disappointment and more grumbling. Because the problem is not circumstance, it goes deeper. It's a general discontentment in life, a general joylessness of heart that leads to grumbling. And when we're discontent and joyless and disappointed, we look for anyone or anything to blame, whether it be another person or an organization or a systemic reality in this world. You might say that grumbling is characterized by antagonism toward another person or thing. And we see this in our passage with crystal clarity. The people of Israel focus their ire directly on one person. We see it in verse 3. Look at it. The people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Now, did Moses force the people out of Egypt? Of course not. It was the Lord who led the people into the wilderness, but the people can't always see the Lord to place blame on him, so they gravitate to the next best option. And just as an aside here this morning, if you ever have people grumbling towards you in life, it's worth remembering that it's probably not really all about you. When your kids or your parents or employees or neighbors When they grumble against you, most often something more is going on under the surface. And we learn from our passage that it's about God. Their grumbling is about God. It's it's a deeper heart issue, but the people need a physical person to pin their grumbling on. Moses gets this. Look at verse 2, where Moses responds to their grumbling by saying, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Grumbling is is at its root a spiritual problem. God had just rescued his people with power. The people saw his miraculous deeds. They had experienced his care and provision. And just three days, three days after they crossed over the Red Sea, they're grumbling about bitter water. And then six weeks after that, we looked at it last week, they're grumbling about nothing to eat. And now again in chapter 17, they're grumbling about water. You might say these people have a case of spiritual amnesia. They've forgotten who God is and what he's done in their life. They've started to believe that God has brought them into the wilderness to kill them. They don't trust the Lord. When things get dicey, they have a hard time depending on God to provide, to come through. You might say they're people of little faith. Now it's important to step back and recognize that the Israelites, they remember the facts. They hadn't forgotten about how God had split the Red Sea and delivered them, but they're not allowing the facts to affect their heart in the way they view the world. They never stop and think, maybe, just maybe, if God could split the Red Sea, maybe he could provide water here in the desert. Maybe if he's gone to all this trouble to deliver us, maybe he doesn't plan to let us die in the wilderness. It's so easy for God's people to forget God's promises, to grumble when things don't happen the way that we'd like or in our timing. It's so easy for us to set terms with God on how he should respond to our faithfulness. But in the Exodus story, we are reminded that God is with us. As we travel through the wilderness of life, God is with us, just like he's with the Israelites. God is with them because he took them there. God is directing their steps. In fact, what we see in the wilderness is that God leads his people. He leads his people to a place of need, a place of desperation over and over again. And we're not exactly sure how many times of need and desperation the Israelites encountered. We have at least three instances recorded for us in chapters 15 through 17. And in these instances, we see bitter water, we see no bread, and this morning we see no water. Now, why would God bring his people to a place of desperation three times in the span of just a few weeks? Well, we don't have to guess because in each instance, we're explicitly told. In chapters 15, 16, and 17, we see that God was testing his people. Now, does it surprise you that God tests you through suffering? It certainly might surprise you. It's not how we would expect God to work in our lives, is it? But we see time and time again that God works to shape and form His people through testing, through adversity, through trials. We read this encouragement in 1 Peter 4.12 where Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. It's not strange. Don't be surprised. The Lord has always tested His people through adversity. We are not immune to trials. And if we don't understand this, if we don't understand this, we are so liable to grow cynical or hopeless or confused when adversity comes. Learning this is a part of what it means to follow the Lord through the wilderness. We all experience adversity. Maybe it's the death of a loved one, the loss of a friend or a marriage, the inability to have children, enduring a challenging job or parenting situation, physical suffering, chronic pain, migraines, anxiety. These are all effects of the fall in this world, but they are not pointless. They are not random. God can use even these sad, unfortunate realities for His good purposes, and He does. Praise the Lord. They're all forms of adversity. We've got to recognize that. And in the wilderness, wandering portions of Exodus, it's forcing us to ask the question, how will we face adversity? Why does God test us through adversity? Well, it probably doesn't come as a surprise to learn that testing reveals what's really there. You've all taken a test in school before. When you take a test in school, the instructor is attempting to get a sense of what you've internalized, right? What do you know? We also know that rare gems, they're formed under pressure, and you realize how strong something is under pressure. And in much the same way, God's testing. It's meant to shape a deeper trust in us and to reveal the true character of our faith. How will you respond when you face adversity in life? Not if, but when. How will you respond when you face adversity? What will you learn about yourself when God brings testing? We find out about ourselves in adversity. It reveals the true character of our faith. And this is never to discourage us, by the way, but to invite us into deeper trust, independence on the Lord. It's in the New Testament book of James where we read, Count it all joy, brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Do you want steadfastness? Do you want to grow in perseverance as you follow the Lord? I wish there was an easier way. But our trust and dependence on the Lord, it grows as we travel through the wilderness. It grows as we're forced to rely on Him more deeply in the midst of adversity. And we can count it all joy when we encounter trials because it's not only forming steadfastness in us, we also learn the true character of God's love and provision as we move through trials. How does God respond to Israel when they fail the test? Well, look at verse 5 and 6. The Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and people will drink. How does God respond to grumbling? How does he respond to our lack of trust? How does he respond to unbelief? Well, he responds by providing water from a rock. Water from a rock. Through the wilderness wanderings, what we see is that God provides every time, bitter to sweet in chapter 15, manna from heaven in chapter 16, water from a rock here in chapter 17. God doesn't use trials to chastise us. He uses trials to reveal his grace and love even more. Now, I want you to pause for just a minute and consider why the Lord asks Moses to use the staff. That's an interesting, curious thing that's going on here. Why is the staff of Moses important in this account? Well, consider what it represents and what it's done before in the book of Exodus. It was the staff used to bring the plagues upon Egypt, wasn't it? And as God brought the plagues upon Egypt, the staff of Moses, it played a key role in those plagues, a key role in bringing God's judgment upon the Egyptian people. God used that staff to judge Egypt and to save Israel. And God is inviting them to remember this staff, all that he's done for them. God's not there to harm them. He once again wants to use the staff to save them. And even though Israel deserved to be struck with the staff of judgment because of their grumbling and their lack of trust, what we see is God does not strike Israel. He strikes a rock. And by so doing, provides them with living water in the middle of a desert. Now, I want you to tuck that idea away for just a minute because we're going to come back to it shortly. But before we do, let's pivot and ask the question, how can testing be loving and gracious? I'd imagine that's not a proposition everyone just readily buys, that testing is loving and gracious. It can be difficult to understand how testing and trials can be loving. How can my pain and suffering be a sign of God's love in my life? Well, you've got to do something with suffering and testing. You'll synthesize it in some way as you experience it. It's either going to make you more cynical or more compassionate. It'll either push you away from God or it'll push you further towards Him. We've got to make sense of our suffering and our testing. And while suffering and testing is certainly an effect of the fall, we experience it because we live in a sinful world. That doesn't mean that God doesn't use our suffering. It doesn't mean that he's not uh, sovereign over the sufferings that we experience in this world. And that's hopeful because it means that even our suffering isn't wasted by God. He is using it for some grand, beautiful purpose in our life. And often we can't see it. We might say it like this, God loves us so much that he wants us completely dependent on him. And he will test us until we say, all I have is Christ and actually mean it. God will boldly love you and pursue you. And testing is God's chosen means to make us more like Jesus. Testing is not a sign that God has left you. It might just be a sign that he is more deeply engaged with you than ever. I like how one commentator put it when he writes this. It's printed for you in the front of your bulletin. God's understanding of good may be different from what you would like in your life, but you can trust him. He has not withheld anything good from you, for he has given you his son. There is nothing else to give. There is no greater good that God could have given to you. Which leads us to pick back up with the staff and the rock as we close our reflection on this passage. Verse 6, it's very curious, where the Lord is speaking and says, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock of Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. The Lord says that I will stand before you on the rock. And the rock was struck by the staff that had always been a tool to execute God's judgment. The staff that brought the horrible plagues of justice upon Egypt. Now, what in the world is going on here? Well, there seems to be a close identification between the presence of God and the rock, doesn't there? And this shouldn't surprise us because God has already identified himself with a flame of fire and a pillar of smoke as he leads his people through the wilderness. And throughout the Bible, God is described as a rock. He's the rock of our salvation. And if we can draw the connection between God and the rock that identification that God seems to make in verse 6, it means that God himself was struck by the staff of judgment, and from that strike flows living water. And if you're not willing to take my word for that interpretation, I don't blame you if you're not, maybe you'll take Paul's word for it. Because he references this rock in the wilderness when he writes to the Corinthian church in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, Paul says, For the Israelites drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Verse 6 of our passage, it's a dramatic and surprising moment. Moses brings down the rod of judgment on God himself, the rock, which was Christ. God takes the judgment that his people deserve here in Exodus 17. And as a result, blessing flows to the people as the water comes out from the rock to quench the people's thirst. What happened at this rock, it's a picture of a pointer to the cross. You see Jesus all in the pages of the Old Testament. Don't ever let you tell, let someone tell you that the gospel is not there where God the Father in this passage said, strike the rock in the rod of judgment and justice. It fell upon God himself just like it fell upon Jesus on the cross. Jesus is both the bread that satisfies our needs and the rock who bears our judgment. And this is why Jesus could say in John chapter 7 that whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, rivers of living water will flow from within him. After God's people had failed the test, after they had grumbled and grumbled and grumbled again, the rock takes the blow. And because that rock was struck, we now have living water in the wilderness. That is good news for a group of people making their way through the desert. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, we are so thankful for the way that you provide Lord, you have delivered us through your son, Jesus Christ, who took the strike for us. If you have given us him, how will you not also give us all things? We pray that you would help us to believe that, help us to trust in you. In the midst of adversity and trials, help it to form and shape our faith, our dependence, our trust in you even more deeply. We pray that you would be with us this week as we continue to follow you, seeking to be faithful, seeking to be dependent, seeking to give you all praise for the provision that you provide. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.